Friends, I'd encourage you to take your Bible in hand and open it to 1 Peter chapter 5. We have uh, had the, just the, the joy of studying the Word of God as given to us through the, through the means of the Apostle Peter. It's wonderful how the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, and yet God honors and uses the personalities of those people through whom he gives us the word. We see them reflected there. Though it's God's truth, it's his eternal word that will never fall, it's still given to us in the context of these people's lives and experiences. And whenever Peter stresses something, as we'll see today, I often reflect on the successes and victories as well as struggles and failures that are reflected from his own life that he is reflecting on as he encourages the believers. As we've shown throughout this series, uh, it's written to a group of believers in the five Roman provinces in modern-day Turkey along the Black Sea, part of the world that is often in the news today. But Peter, at this late point in his life and ministry, is writing this letter to these churches, not from Jerusalem, but Peter gives greetings from she, the church, she who is in Babylon, and that's the often used code word the Christians used for Rome itself in case the letter is, rep, uh, is intercepted. Others wouldn't understand that. Peter is writing with the help of Silas, who is a longtime associate with the Apostle Paul, and uh, Silas is acting as his translator. Peter obviously could speak Greek as well as Aramaic, but he wasn't as fluent or as well. Uh, his writing wasn't as good as Silas's was. And Second uh, Peter, for instance, the Greek is much more rudimentary. It's, it's, it's not nearly as smooth or polished Greek language. So it's very likely that Silas was not Paul's, uh, Peter's secretary or technically amanuensis, one who took his message and put it into smooth language. But uh, Peter very likely wrote Second Peter himself, put quill to parchment. In this passage, though, as throughout the letter, Peter has been preparing these believers for a time of persecution. Part of that preparation, as we've seen, is that Peter reminds them is that they are not losing their homes because they are not home yet. This world, Peter reminds us, is not our home. We are sojourners. We should grip the things of this world, not tenaciously, but as Martin Luther once said, hang on to the things of this world with a loose grip. We can't keep them. They will pass away. The only thing you take into eternity is your relationship with Christ and the grace and love that you share with other people. And, uh, and Peter is telling them to be prepared because as he sees in Rome the persecution the church is experiencing in Rome, as they finally come out from behind the, uh, the auspices of Judaism, as we've mentioned before, Judaism in the whole Roman Empire had special privileges. They did not have to worship the emperor to enter the marketplace and so forth. They had, uh, they had, uh, they were accepted and tolerated as an official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity started as Messianic Jews. They were seen as a subsect of Judaism, but now more and more they are seen primarily as Gentile believers, and they're no longer seen or protected under Judaism, and persecution official 
Roman-backed persecution is coming their way. Peter calls it a fiery ordeal, which is appropriate because he is in Rome and soon will be executed by Emperor Nero, who used to roll Christians in pitch, put them on poles, and light them afire to light his gardens at night in his estates around Rome. Not only is this a fiery trial, but they will be torn apart in arenas. In Turkey, we visited so many Roman cities. There's an old saying that if you want to see Roman ruins, you do not go to Italy, you go to Turkey because they are so well preserved. You see these ancient cities. We walked in the arenas and the stadiums where the seat numbers were still carved in the seats and, and backgammon boards. Between the gladiator fights or the races, people would gamble and play games. They were carved in the seats. But to know that down in those stadiums themselves, not only did the gladiators give their all and lose their lives, but during times of persecution, enemies of the state, i.e. these Nazarene followers, these seditious Christians, were put to death in large numbers. The most common uh, form of execution was uh, by wild animal. They were often put in animal skins and animals would then tear them apart and consume them for the enjoyment of the spectators. So in this context, we will see Peter speaking of our spiritual enemy, Satan, in terms of a lion. And this has become very meaningful to God's people in time. As I said, it's a time not only of physical and political persecution, but Peter recognizes, as does James the Apostle, that there is spiritual warfare going on, that this is merely the visible uh, outworking of. For instance, James says in James chapter 4, verse 7, familiar passage, James says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We see those terms, Satan and devil, in these passages. They mean adversary as well as accuser, enemy and accuser. They've already experienced, as we've seen throughout Peter, they have been slandered. They have been accused and slandered, one of Satan's native approaches and languages. But soon they'll be experiencing him as a lion looking to still kill and destroy. So the Apostle Peter is using this letter to prepare them that the suffering that they are undergoing is not uh, going to be a surprise to God or to them. In fact, as we see a hint in this passage or in these uh, passages today, nothing uh, happens to God's children that is not allowed by God. Nothing comes into our lives. And by the grace of God, everything, the hard things as well as the good things, can be used to grow us more in the image of Jesus. And that gives me great hope and thanksgiving. Peter's message to them today is to stand firm, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That term, stand firm, is a military term. It means to plant your feet and not be moved. What you see on the screen are what the Roman soldiers wore on their feet. They were a type of boot. They were open in the Mediterranean in the warmer countries that the Roman legionnaires marched. Those Roman boots were called caliga. Your caliga was an open sandal-type structure. 
The bottom of it, though, was heavy layers of leather. Uh, Caliga is in part, speaking of the leather, uh, hard leather in Latin is callus, and we all know what a callus is on your hand. Well, that hard-soled leather, the Roman soldiers would put hobnails through them to give them grip. They wore cleated boots, and they were able to stand firm on the battlefield. There's examples, though, of Roman soldiers getting into a fight if they're standing on stone, especially polished marble, as Josephus records Roman soldiers fighting Jewish uh, defenders on the Temple Mount. But in Jesus' day, the great temple courts were completely paved with beautiful colored marble. The Roman soldiers were like Bambi, the little deer on ice in that classic cartoon. They could not keep their feet, and those hobnails were a detriment to them. But in most battlefields they fought, they were able to stand firm, and they fought many soldiers deep. If you fell in battle, you uh, were, were most often, uh, you lose your life, not just from the wounds from javelins or swords, but trampled with Roman boots. They would polish and they would, uh, they would uh, sharpen their hobnails to be able to stomp their opponents, lay, line after line of soldiers, as the battle line would push over the fallen people. So to stand firm is what they understood. When they used that term, they thought of a caliga. Now, caliga, you say, that sounds a little bit familiar. Well, it should, because shortly before Peter wrote this letter, the emperor of the Roman Empire, his name was Gaius Caesar, but nobody remembers him as Gaius Caesar. We remember him as Caligula. That means little pair of Caliga. Caligula was because when he was a little boy with his father, the great Roman emperor Germanicus, he would be with his father in the army camps and wear a perfect tiny Roman uniform, the armor, right down to his cute little hobnail boots. And so the soldiers loved that little guy. He was like their mascot, and his nickname was Little Boots, Little Soldier Hobnail Boots. And he was known as that throughout his life, Caligula. It's all about taking a stand. Now, we need to take a stand, Peter says, because your enemy in spiritual warfare is near. The enemy is at hand. And he says, as James did, that uh, you need to resist this enemy. Peter states it in strong terms that your enemy is like a lion, a lion that many of them would be familiar with, not in the wild, but in the arenas as they would take the lives of prisoners and criminals and eventually of Christians as well. We begin these last few verses that will be in Peter uh, with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter tells them, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be self-controlled. Be alert. Peter has told us on numerous occasions in this letter to be awake, be sober-minded, be on alert, keep your spiritual antennae extended. And Peter knows that from hard experience because Peter himself, he fell when he wasn't alert, when rather than standing guard and being awake, he fell asleep there when Jesus asked him, to stay watchful and pray even for an hour in the garden of Gethsemane.
Well, when it comes to our enemy, the adversary, Satan, the devil, I just want to remind you that Christianity, Judeo-Christian teaching, the Bible is not a dualistic religion. There are many dualistic religions in the world that have a good being and his counterpart, a bad being. Satan is not the equivalent of God. Satan is a created being. He was an archangel, from what we can tell, the passages that speak of him in Scripture, but he was a created being, a glorious created being, a powerful created being, but still he was not divine. Satan is not unlike God. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not all power. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not everywhere all at once. He's not omnipresent. Only God is. Satan is a limited being, but still, Peter says, you need to respect him. You don't make fun of it. You don't take it lightly. War is war. Spiritual war is is the most serious of all conflicts because the results are eternal. To respect the enemy, we look at passages like Revelation chapter 12, speaks of the great dragon, Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 tells us, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Elsewhere, passages indicate that up to a third of the angels fell with Satan. So they are fallen spiritual beings. And they hate you. As you read further in Revelation chapter 12, it says, He goes to war against God's people, that he hates them, and he seeks to destroy them because he knows his doom is at hand. And so Satan, your enemy, takes no prisoners. There's no peace treaties. He is out to destroy. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We must respect the enemy. We must understand who the enemy is. And because of the nature of the enemy, not only... And there's like four little R's in here to help remember in spiritual warfare. The first is respect the enemy, but don't fear them. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, but you respect the enemy. The second thing is you need to recognize your enemy because of the nature of Satan. As we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 13... The Apostle Paul, reflecting on false teachers, says this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that the servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Satan can counterfeit. There's so many spiritual counterfeits. We wonder, why are there so many religions in this world? That is to confuse the situation. It's a counterfeit. And Satan can seem like an angel of light. I find it instructive that throughout history, time and time again, we see false and even evil 
movements in humanity begin with revelations from angels of light, whether that be Gabriel coming to a trader named Muhammad in the desert or Moroni coming to a Freemason treasure hunter named Joseph Smith as Moroni the archangel. These are false angels, angels of light. They're deceptive. We need to not only respect the enemy but recognize Satan at work. Again, I look at this through the lens of Peter, his strengths, his success, his failure. I find that we often feel that we are safe, that we're quite safe from Satan's attacks. But when I look at Scripture, the great men and women of faith, they often fall to the schemes of the devil at their points of strength. (laughs) Abraham, the father of faith, he stumbled and lost his faith in God and lied about Sarah being his wife in Egypt. We see Moses. Scripture tells us, when you think of Moses, what was his greatest strength? Scripture says it was his humility and his meekness. And yet he fell at that point, made rash decisions, and murdered a man in defense of his countrymen. Peter, of all the apostles, that burly fisherman Peter, he was the most courageous. (laughs) And he fell at the point of his courage. He was afraid even of a serving girl and he denied his Lord. Remember that in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells us about Satan being involved in the events of that night. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31, Jesus tells Peter at the Last Supper, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And the word you there is not individual, it's plural. That's all the apostles. Satan, remember, nothing happens that God doesn't allow. Satan has gone to God himself and says, give those men into my hands like you did Job. Let me test their faith. I want to sift them as wheat. Jesus says, Satan is asked to sift you all as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Well, his faith never failed, but his courage did. And he did turn back. And Jesus did restore him. Because for God's children, failures are not fatal. And Peter, learning from this, tells us to stand firm. Be aware of the devil's schemes. He's like a lion. He is at hand looking for somebody to to destroy. Respect him. Recognize him. Don't take it lightly. And yet he is at work. He is at work in the world today. He's at work in our community. He's at work in our church. No church is perfect. Because wherever God is at work, the devil's at work too. Maybe not personally, because remember, the devil's an archangel. There's only one of him. But his demonic host is busy, deceiving, oppressing, in extreme cases among unbelievers, possessing people in this world today. Often in the West, Satan hides behind a cloak of rationality. The devil is perfectly happy for you to go to a godless eternity in hell, not believing that he exists. Oh, he's so happy. But in cultures that are very open to the spirit world and seek to appease evil spirits, 
Oh boy, Satan is like a roaring lion right out in the open. I have seen demonic possession and so forth among the native peoples of Canada involved in that ministry. Satan is like a roaring lion there. Corey Tinboom, survivor of German concentration camps, lost everything, lost her family. Her sister died in the camp with her. She said this once about the work of Satan. When a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, you get that sometimes. Oh, you think this church isn't good enough for you, or you got a grudge against somebody in the church, or you're just getting lazy and selfish. You don't want to be around other Christians. When a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When he stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. When he stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. See, the devil can't take away your salvation, but he can keep you fruitless and useless for the kingdom of God. Friends, if we're to respect the enemy and recognize the enemy, how do we resist the enemy? Peter says in this passage that faith is our victory. Faith. It's not the strength of your faith. It's not the power of your faith. It's in whom you put your faith. It's faith in Jesus. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We continue looking at 1 Peter chapter 5 in verse 9. Peter continues, resist him, standing firm. That's a caliga word. Plant those hobnail boots in the ground. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Oh, we may be mocked or belittled or shut out of the marketplace of ideas because of our old-fashioned traditional ideas based on the truth of God's Word. But we have nothing to complain about in comparison with Christians around the world who are being actively, openly persecuted or find themselves in dangerous, war-torn situations seeking to be peacemakers in those times. We need to lift up and pray for one another, but it gives us hope because you don't face anything alone. Not only is the Lord with you, but you have the example of brothers and sisters around the world and throughout the last 2,000 years of church history who go through similar situations. And in each one of those, the faith is the victory. Peter says not just faith, but the faith. And he's speaking of our relationship with Jesus, the good news of the gospel. That's the power of salvation, and that is the source of our victory. We resist the enemy, and we're not alone. We can resist and hold strong because in whom we, of the one in whom you put your faith the Apostle Paul, speaking of spiritual war, reminds us in that wonderful passage, the last chapter of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, how to resist, how to resist the enemy. He says in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, 
and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Taking our stand because of the resources. Paul's speaking of the resources that God gives to us to stand firm. These resources, he goes further and elaborates the armor of God. Last year at Kids Club, that was our theme for half of the year was the full armor of God. And we had uh, Carter Strohschein dress up in a piece of armor every week. It was kind of comical because the armor was largely made of cardboard. And I looked at that every week and said, that's not going to stop the devil. But the lesson was still there. The kids heard about the full armor of God. I have a graphic of, from that time looking at the passage as it continues in Ephesians chapter 6. Look at the resources you have to take your stand against the enemy. You put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand, take the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Stand with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Faith, salvation, the Word of God, all of it bound together by accessing the power of God's Spirit through prayer. A person who does this daily will stand, will persevere, will overcome in this life. You know, you've said, well, I'm struggling with this and that. I need to go to this group or I need that and maybe I need a counselor, maybe I need therapy, maybe I need medication. As a pastor, I say, maybe you better get in your Bible every day. Maybe you better start your day with your devotions. Maybe you better pray and be a friend of Jesus throughout the day. Maybe you better access the resources that God gives you before you run to the things of this world. The resources that God gives are sufficient. Jesus is not found wanting. When you have taken your stand, you will be able to stand. For an example of this, we have no greater example than Jesus himself. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, one of the examples of Jesus, one of the synoptic gospels accounts of Jesus fasting for 40 days, physically at an all-time low. Satan loves to attack when you're physically sick or low because spiritually you'll be open to attack because God, he, God has made us a unified individual, body, soul, spirit your body, your mind, your soul, inextricably linked. When you're hungry, <laughs> your, your mind isn't clear. When you're weak, your soul is weak. Jesus was fasting for 40 days. But he, when Satan tempted him, used the resources that God has given each one of his children. We read that the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus himself quoted Scripture to Satan. And that was enough. It said after that temptation, the tempter left him. He resisted the devil and he fled from him. 
these same resources and the presence of Christ in our hearts are available to God's people today. There may be suffering in this world, fiery trials coming to us, but Peter says when that time comes and it will be temporary, the God will restore us. And that gives us hope. We finish this morning and we finish our study with, in Peter with God's gift of hope. First Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, we read, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And that is how Peter finishes the teaching portion of his letter. After that is greetings. And those are important, but we won't be covering those today. This is how he finishes with the offer of hope freely given from the God of all grace. God will not put your restoration and your growth as a follower of Jesus in the hands of anyone else. He says that he himself will do it. And those words, they're translated differently in different uh, English translations. But it says that he will restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now these words are powerful. The first word really means to establish. That's when you put something in place and it is set in stone. God will fix you in place and you will not be moved. When you go through a time of suffering by the grace of God, you are stronger when you come out than you when you went in. Your spiritual muscles have developed. It says God will strengthen you. And friends, this isn't your own strength has increased, but the strength of God has been accessed by you. And you begin to live by His strength and His spiritual resources rather than your own, which all too quickly come to an end. And honestly, they're not enough to go up against and resist the enemy. And finally, that steadfast word means to settle into a place. It literally means to dig your foundation down to bedrock so that you will be on solid rock and you won't be able to be moved. That reminds us of Jesus' story about the foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the storm took it down. But the wise man, his house was built on the rock and that house is the life that we live. Today, as a believer, are you living on the rock? House upon a rock is the name of Paul and Sharon's mission in the Dominican Republic. And what an appropriate name, not only for the mission, but for each one of our lives. We need to live our lives on Jesus. People of this world go through hard times. Common phrase is, they lost hope. It was a hopeless situation. They lost their possessions. They lost loved ones. They lost their lives. They lose hope. It's a funny thing about the children of God as we've seen for 2,000 years, no matter what you throw our way through the schemes of the devil and the hatred of this world, we're still here, more numerous than we've ever been. We're still alive. We're still hopeful. Because our hope, rather than being lost, it grows and becomes stronger the Apostle Paul makes this eminently clear in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. 
he says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. God's gift to the suffering is hope. As Peter says, this suffering is but for a little while. Even these lives, if your life is a life of struggle and suffering, it's over in a heartbeat. Scripture says, the Apostle Paul says, our light, our temporary and transient suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that comes from it, which is eternal, eternal. And finally, friends, be assured that the pain which is part and parcel of suffering that we endure in this world, it will one day be done. Scripture tells us that at the end, pain passes away. Just as Scripture encourages you that tears may last the night, but joy comes in the morning. Revelation chapter 21, recently in speaking to the folks at St. Mary's, we focused on this passage, the New Jerusalem. And part of that is the end of pain, the end of suffering. Beginning in verse 3, the Apostle John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Until that day, when God wipes away the last tear from his eye, may we stand firm. In the faith, may we plant our feet and use the resources daily that God gives you, for that is sufficient. The word of God, prayer, his spirit poured out into our hearts, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Peter as you moved his heart in love and concern for the believers in those five Roman provinces. Lord, those provinces are long gone. Those believers are living with you in glory. But that message, Lord, you breathed into Peter your living word, and it still is true today. And Lord, in the world today, we pray for our brothers who are suffering around the world. Lord, we thank you that they don't hold their lives too precious to stand firm for you. Lord, as we live in such an affluent part of the world, blessed with so many material things, Lord, we undergo different testing. Lord, your children here tend to be so selfish. We tend to make material things and comfort into idols. And Lord, when we do that, we're fruitless for the kingdom of God. Lord, whatever the enemy's schemes are for us, may we overcome them by the truth of your word, the power of your spirit. Lord, may we be salt and light 
And Lord, may people meet us, know that we love God with all of our hearts and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, this is our prayer. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. We look forward to a good couple weeks of holidays. We'll be uh, up to our cabin, up to visit Matthew in Saskatoon. And uh, pray for us as we travel, as we will remember and pray for you every day. God bless.